Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. So, I don't know if you saw this this week. There was a Pew Research study that was highlighted, I think it was this week, and it highlighted that seven out of ten American evangelicals, or seven out of ten Americans, excuse me, describe themselves as spiritual. Now, when we get down to brass tacks about what that actually means, they highlight in the article, uh, I think it was from thehill.com or something that, that was kind of surveying this, I think it was one in ten of, of those people uh, describe themselves as tied to historic kind of uh, faith claims. So what we have then in this statistic, this research that's done, is we have 70% of people in America describing themselves as spiritual, yet only about 25% or somewhere in there, I think in the article, was those that would actually hold to some standard of faith outside of themselves. So what we have in this research is described is an American faith that is largely self-defined. Many of us are coming into contact more and more with people who make claims of faith, and those claims of faith are really rooted in how I feel about myself. How is it that I orient to me? And the claims of faith, whether they're in Jesus or or whatever else it might be, are really meant to kind of bolster or buffer me and what I am so that I can become a better version of me. What's fascinating here in Luke chapter 1 is that there is a God who exists outside of us. There is a God who makes claims on the world, who interacts with the world and introduces himself to the world in the person of his own son. He invites uh, men like Zechariah and John the Baptist and women like Mary and Elizabeth into this kind of revolution that he's doing in the world. And so these claims of faith are not just to bolster the Zechariahs and the Marys. They are actually meant to change those around them. John the Baptist is not just in the desert for himself on a spiritual retreat. John the Baptist is engaged with the mission of God. See, the truth is this morning that our claims of faith are more than just for ourselves. That they're meant to change those around us. That God is actually doing something in the world in our midst. This morning, as we kind of head into Luke chapter 1, I think we're going to see this basic claim come to the surface. God uses peripheral people to centralize his Savior. Sounds a little bit like what we discussed last week, because I think the two themes kind of mash together here in Luke chapter 1. But God uses peripheral people, people on the outside, to centralize his Savior. Now, the difference from last week is we told you last week that that this is uh, about what you do is important, and, and how you interact with the world around you is important. The emphasis that we want to put on this morning is that what you do should should showcase, should spotlight the person of Jesus Christ. It should put him center stage and not me center stage. My claims of belief in Jesus should not be about me and myself first and foremost. They should be about the centralization of his Savior and his purpose in the world. I think we're going to 
dive into that in this prophecy that we hear from Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. But we're actually going to cover some 10 verses before that about the birth of John the Baptist, because I think these two narratives kind of push together in a certain way. So first we're going to see our obedience can give us undue influence in the world in verses 57 through 66. As we look at this birth narrative of John the Baptist, what exactly is being emphasized here is this question about who is this man going to be? What is he going to become? And the answer then is given to us in verses 67 through 80, where God's predicted plan was fulfilled in ways we didn't anticipate. We'll see exactly how John the Baptist fits into this larger narrative that God is doing in the world. So let's start with our premise here in verses 57 through 66. Our obedience can give us undue influence. Look at verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by his name, by this name. And they made signs to the father inquiring what he wanted to be called, what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. See, the first thing that starts is that God gives mercy to Elizabeth in a son. In verses 57 through 58, we see this. Mary gives birth to John. John is brought and it highlights exactly how this relates to Elizabeth, in verse 58, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Notice what it says, the Lord had shown her great mercy. Luke highlights for us the mercy of God to Elizabeth. The person who was barren now has a child. The person who was kind of lowly in society's eyes is now elevated, just like we saw with Mary last week. But I don't think this is all that the Lord wants us to see, because the narrative keeps going, right? Verses 59 through 63, we get this controversy about how this child is going to be named. And so what happens is our text gives us four different usages of this word called called. It's the the term kaleo, to be called out. 59, 60, 61, 62. We might not think anything of this, except Luke has consistently used this word throughout Luke chapter 1. Zechariah was to name the child John in chapter 1, verse 13. In chapter 1, verse 31, Mary was to name her child Jesus. And it's not just that. In verse 32, it highlights Jesus's character. He, Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Verse 35, therefore, the child will be born, will be called holy. See, it's highlighting not only the name of these people, but also the character and the kind of a prophetic notion of what they will become. And so this nation of what this child will be named is pretty central to this passage. It highlights that God has a a purpose for John that even his parents don't fully understand. In fact, this whole passage centers on this question that we've already discussed, who will this child be? What is meant for the future of this child? And so this text tells us that this name was unexpected. That's the controversy in verses 60 and 61, right? They they go to, to have the child circumcised. That's the time where you would declare a name for this baby. And sure enough, they're thinking, well, it's little Zechariah, right? It's little Z, you know? 
And so you're going to circumcise him. You're going to name the child. But sure enough, Elizabeth says, no, his name is to be John. And they're like, no, that can't be right. So they go hunt down the mute guy and they start making signs to him. Even though he can hear perfectly fine, they're making signs to him. And, and Zechariah grabs his tablet and he writes out his name is John. And it's like they're all flabbergasted by this whole situation, right? So it's not just that it was unexpected. It was confirmed by Zechariah. And what happens is that all of these people kind of respond with this sense of awe. And look at verse 63. And they all wondered. Whatever the circumstances are around John's birth and John's naming, it leads to this sense of wonder amongst this party that happens to be present there. Verse 64 tells us that immediately Zechariah's mouth was open, his tongue was loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And then the further outcome in verses 65 and 66 is that this whole nation is affected. Look at verse 65. Fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard him laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. See, what the product of all of this is, is that the fear that was given to Zechariah in the presence of God in the temple when Gabriel comes to him, the fear that he's struck with in chapter 1, verse 12, now gets transferred to the whole region of Judea because of Zechariah's obedience. See, Zechariah, Elizabeth, they do the faithful thing. They show up on the eighth day with this child. They're in perfect conformity with Genesis 17 and the nation of this covenant. And so sure enough, they're obedient. And and immediately when, when Zechariah writes out his name is John, he's obedient to Gabriel, the angel, and earlier in chapter one, God unlooses his tongue, and he starts to declare God's blessing, and it leads to this product of fear and awe for God in all the hill country of Judea. Notice a question there in verse 66. All of them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? There it is, that question again. What will John become? What's the future of this individual? There's so much expectation around this child. The unique nature of John's birth, that is, uh, the birth to aging, barren parents, birth to a muted man, the birth with a strange naming process, and all of this brings attention to John's future. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, but there's this thing called the butterfly effect. This makes me sound smarter than I really am when I talk about things, but really it's just because the internet exists, right? The butterfly effect is this idea, I'm going to read it straight out of Wikipedia, in chaos theory, the butterfly effect is the sensitive dependence on initial conditions in which a small change in one state, a deterministic nonlinear system, can result in large differences in a larger state. You're saying, obviously, right? Practically speaking, if a butterfly, this is the idea, a butterfly flaps its wings in Idaho, two weeks later there might be a tornado. The idea is that a small, inconsequential thing can lead to large, consequential things. The butterfly flapping its wings, stirring up pollen, can cause weather changes. You know the rest of the story. See, small things can have large influence. John the Baptist's birth seems small to us right now, but by the end of the book of Luke, Luke or any of the Gospels, his birth will have massive kingdom-building effect. 
that this young child born to this estranged couple would be the predecessor to the Messiah, as we'll see later on. See, it reminds us this morning that we we should not discount the power of a simple, obedient life. Do not discount the power of a simple, obedient life. Luke 1 is filled with ordinary people performing ordinary acts unto undue importance. Mary and Elizabeth give birth to this child who will change the world, or these children who will change the world. Zechariah is initially unbelieving, but then obedient, and God uses his obedience to build expectation in this hometown of his. We recognize this hasn't changed today, has it? God still uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways. I always get a sense of this with our our baptisms. I love our baptisms because uh, we actually invite the candidate to to pull in people that have been effective in their life. And so sometimes it might be a pastor or an elder, but many times it's a father or a mother or, or someone else who's been influential in their discipleship. We invite them to either, if they're a member of the church, to perform the baptism or to read their prayer or to pray over them or to read their testimony or pray over them. And what it does is it reflects this idea that God uses ordinary people to invite people into his kingdom. It's such a, a refreshing thing as we see this. Is like God uses moms and dads. God uses friends and neighbors. God uses schoolmates and, and classmates. He uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways to accomplish his purpose amongst his people. He's still changing people through ordinary folks today. In fact, God tells us that he wants to use ordinary people, that it highlights his power and his authority. Second Corinthians chapter 4, we saw this last week, that he's kind of taken this message of, of God's grace and mercy, and he's put it in jars of clay. That's it's me and you. We're weak, ordinary things. Paul showed up in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, you know, I didn't come with eloquence or, or with speech. What I came with was just simply knowing Christ and him crucified in order that the power of his spirit might be known. Peter says this, that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, that he was a simple, ordinary individual that had seen extraordinary things and was just testifying to what he saw and saw and knew about Christ. The ordinary people doing every extraordinary things by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's how God builds his kingdom. We might be tempted to think that God does extraordinary things through extraordinary people. We hear all of the stories of the Charles Spurgeons, of these people that have given themselves and they're extraordinarily eloquent or they're more capable. They they, uh, oversee masses of people. They build massive churches. And we think to ourselves, that's how God works. That's how God builds his kingdom. No, how God builds his kingdom is through you and I showing up on a Monday and not cursing out our boss when we feel like it right? Showing up on a Monday and actually going to the water cooler with a gospel intention about how we live. That's how God uses us, ordinary people, in extraordinary ways. So, what was this ordinary man, John, to become by God's empowering? And I think that's what we get the answer in verses 67 through 80. As Zechariah is moved by Zechariah, Zechariah is moved by the Holy Spirit. 
And he begins to prophesy, and we find just kind of embedded into this section exactly who John the Baptist will be. So God predict, God's predicted plan was fulfilled in ways we, we don't anticipate. Look at verse 67. After his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from all our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now listen to how he turns and pivots here in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What is Zechariah saying here? See, it's easy for us to kind of conclude that what is happening here is this kind of word salad that's going on. There's just this uh, stating of terms that just lay over top of one another, and it's hard for us to kind of pick out the pieces, right? What starts is that Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. We see this a number of times in Luke chapters 1 and 2. Every time we see this, we should kind of tune our ears in because the Spirit is trying to highlight something that he wants to say through his servant. So he starts off telling of Israel's salvation from their enemies in verses 68 through 75. There's this kind of jumble of concepts that happens there in 68 through 75, and it all kind of sound the same. But I think if we kind of zero in, we might find three different themes that come out in Zechariah's prophecy. First, God's saving his people. Verse 68 tells us that God has redeemed or bought back his people. Verse 69 tells us that, that God has raised up a horn of salvation. You're like, that's great. What in the world is a horn of salvation? That's probably right out of David's words from 2 Samuel 22. David had this moment where he has all these Philistine people around him. And God, in His grace, allows him to fully and finally defeat the Philistines in First Samuel or Second Samuel twenty-one, and He responds like David would with a psalm that He writes in Second Samuel twenty-two. It's actually what we know as Psalm eighteen as well. And it says this: He says, "If you, O, I love you, O Lord, my strength." The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom shall I take refuge? my shield, and the horn of my salvation. See, that phrase is used right there in this kind of uh, grouping of words that all refer to God as his protection. See, Zechariah invokes this, Zechariah invokes this phrase that every Israelite would be familiar with. And he's kind of pulling this concept in saying, uh, this Jesus, this uh, God is is providing a salvation for his people. He's providing a hiding place a horn of salvation. 
So the first thing is he's saving his people. Second thing is God is saving his people from their enemies. That's specifically what the context is telling us. Look at verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Who, what is God saving Israel from? He's saving them from their enemies. The salvation which Zechariah is describing seems to be envisioned in real time. It's not theoretical or abstract. It has to do with real life things happening in and around them. Honestly, it's it's hard for us to kind of really think through what Zechariah is envisioning here. I wonder if Zechariah is thinking, this guy's going to deliver us from Rome. He's finally going to take us out from Roman occupation, which we know not to be true. Probably more likely is what Calvin and other commentators describe, that, that Zechariah is describing a deliverance from spiritual oppression, that God is actually going to bring about a spiritual deliverance for Israel through the death and resurrection of Christ. Like Colossians 1 say that Jesus would disarm the rulers and authorities and lead them in procession. So the first thing, he's providing salvation. He's providing salvation from their enemies. And theme number three is that God's mercy was promised beforehand. Look at the the references to prophecy here. In verse 70, uh, Zechariah tells us that God spoke it by the prophets. Verse 72 tells us that that God promised it to their fathers. And verse 73 makes it even more applicable that it's from Abraham or through the promises to Abraham. The point is that this is not new information. It was expected. It was predicted. It was anticipated. And so the upshot here is that, that God was visiting his people for the sake of delivering them from their specific enemies, their spiritual enemies. Zechariah describes a spiritual reality which God is addressing in Christ. But notice this isn't the end of the prophecy. There's this kind of boots-on-the-ground mentality. God is going to deliver you from the hand of your spiritual enemies. This is what he's prophesied. He's going to turn his focus back to his newborn son in verses 76 through 79. Read this with me. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is like that uh, that Microsoft Windows computer where you open the folder and it opens up five more folders and you open that folder and it opens up five more folders, right? This is a bad computer analogy. Zechariah is kind of opening up concept after concept and taking us further and further into the heart of our God. And he starts off with who John the Baptist is going to be. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for the Lord. In fact, that's the the prophecy that's stated about him in Malachi chapter 3 and elsewhere in the Old Testament, that John the Baptist was going to kind of set the stage for Jesus to come and to deliver his people. He's going to go before them. He's going to bring about this massive state of baptisms and repentance. And then he's going to showcase who Jesus is. We think of John chapter 1 when we were there. He must increase. I must become less. He's the one whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie. John the Baptist isn't just having this 
presence of ministry that softens the ground. He's actually pointing to Jesus and saying, that's the one you need to follow. So he's that person for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Verse 77 kind of opens the next folder, right? To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now that's different. We've talked about salvation in this passage, haven't we? We've talked about the salvation that he would save his people. Verse 71 But here, the salvation is not about enemies. It's about forgiveness. John the Baptist would prepare the way that he would lay the ground for us to hear a message about how God would forgive us in the person of Jesus Christ. And then it's like he he clicks the folder again and another thing comes up in, in verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's not just that he saves us from our sin, it's that God is actually like shining this new day, this new sunrise is coming to all humanity, that the presence of Christ is actually changing the world that we're no longer in the darkness of our sinfulness, that now God has brought about this sunrise, this newness of day through Christ. And we get this picture then of the salvation that God has brought. It's not just this salvation from these spiritual enemies. God has not only uh, kind of delivered us from our enemies, he's reconciled us to himself. He's brought us back to himself through the dawning of his son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is good news, not just for Mary and Elizabeth and all those in the first century. This is good news for you and for me. That you and I were in darkness and that God has brought the newness of life in Christ, the the dawning of a new day. Jesus will bring this new day. God was not just bringing some type of deliverance from his enemies. He's forgiving us, delivering, restoring. By forgiving our sins, God is delivering from spiritual bondage. You know, there's this funny thing that happens in the Old Testament. We see it in First and Second Kings. We see it a lot of times through the Old Testament that as Israel steps further and further into their idolatrous, sinful ways, that God gives them over further and further to bondage. Until it finally culminates into Second Kings, the end of Second Kings, where uh, the northern kingdom is invaded and just dispersed forever. And eventually the, the southern kingdom is taken over as well. And, and eventually as we are handed over to more and more of our personal sinfulness, the idolatry expressed in these kings and, and these individuals sacrificing on the high places to these idols, and God gives them over to this disobedience and then gives them over to their enemies. See, these two things are true right here in Israel. God had given them over to this bondage to their enemies because of their personal sinfulness. Now Jesus was come to undo all of it. I love this passage. It highlights for us that God uses whomever he wishes to highlight his saving purpose. God uses whoever he wishes to highlight His saving purpose. See, there's really two streams that are happening here in this passage, two different things that are kind of moving. The first is this peripheral prophet, John the Baptist, 
with his unexpected expectation, right? He's unexpected in that he comes to a, a barren couple. He's in the, the throes of just being outside the, the, the way of, of Israeli life at that point in time. He's in Nazareth of all places. And God brings him essentially into his purpose. See, this peripheral prophet is here. John the Baptist's ministry is filled in verses 65 through 66 with expectation. He's an unexpected, expected, excuse me. He has unexpected expectation, if that's what I'm trying to say. I love what verse 66 says. All who heard him laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? See, that's that one thread, this peripheral prophet. But the second thread that's happening in our passage is this central savior that's being described. And really what's happening is just the interweaving of these two threads and how they mix together. How does this person on the outside of, of, of the world become a way for God to usher in his Savior to the center stage. See, quietly, our passage uses John the Baptist's kind of prophecy described here to really highlight not John the Baptist, but Jesus. If we look at what Zechariah is saying in this prophecy, in verses 76 and 77, 78, 79, we're not talking, talking so much about John the Baptist as we are about Christ. In this way, God uses his peripheral prophets to place his center or his savior center stage. You know, it's funny, this book of Luke, it does this kind of movement, and it takes us from the hills of Judea, and as Jesus ministers, he moves closer and closer to Jerusalem. And then Luke writes a second volume called Acts, and Acts describes the movement of the gospel from the city of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God takes something peripheral, he makes it central, and then he spreads it through the whole world. And he does so through the normal, everyday people like you and I, through our obedience to this message. But it starts first with the obedience of one man, the obedience of Jesus, who uh, Luke will say that he set his face like stone toward Jerusalem, that he knew all of the suffering and all of the difficulty that would come, that Jesus, in his active obedience, continues to move toward Jerusalem, toward his death, so that he might redeem for himself sinners like you and I, that he might bring the dawning of this new day. morning, we recognize it's our work to find our role in relation to God's centralized Savior. Just kind of thinking and reflecting this morning, and I recognize that God has his man, and I'm not him. <laughs> Does that make sense? God has anointed his Savior, and I'm not that guy. And neither are you, frankly, this morning. None of us are. Our role is to platform the person of Jesus, 
See, last week we gave you a very affirming message. What you do in Christ matters, no matter how small or big you are, no matter how marginalized or decentralized you've become, God has placed great importance in you. He's placed the hope of the world inside of you. And this week, I think we can say the the counterpart to that, that you aren't central. Yes, God chooses to use insignificant people for his purpose, but his purpose, the spotlighting of his Savior, is the central thing that he wants to accomplish. There's a phrase that I've heard used a number of times. This is because I have kids. And they say this phrase, you know, Somebody will say, you know, the score touchdown or they'll do something or whatever. They'll say, I'm him. And they'll scream at the, t- the camera and say, I'm him. I'm him. And they'll beat their chest and they'll do all these things. And so I looked it up because I'm a nerd. And I, I said, where did that come from? There's a rapper by the name of Kevin Gates. Never heard of him. But he started this, this song in 2019 and it's entitled, I'm him. Right. And I guess him is actually an acronym. Uh his imperial majesty. So he said, I'm the king. I'm the guy, right? And so, you know, there's this hubris. There's this arrogance behind this phrase. The phrase has been used by athletes around the globe to highlight their capability. They, they, they seem to imply that by the nature of who they are, they are unstoppable. And it's this expression of the height of their arrogance. As they can do whatever they want. They can accomplish whatever they set out to do. We recognize that everyone who's had the words roll off his tongue, I'm him, I can, I'm capable, I'm available to do this thing, and no one is going to stop me. All of those people will someday plant their knee in the ground and declare the lordship of Jesus Christ. That in that moment, they will not be him. There will be one him, as it were. See, while our lips might say, I'm him, uh, we might not say that phrase, our actions might betray that very idea. We centralize our agendas and uh, agendas and why wonder why the Lord doesn't bless it. We make our comfort and happiness of utmost importance. We essentially say what I want, what I desire is of the utmost importance. We use our religious terminologies. We use our prayers to this end that we would be comfortable and happy. The truth is this morning that you and I are subservient to the purpose that God has to put his Savior on the pedestal, to centralize the work that he's accomplishing in the world. Yes, God, as we saw last week, God sets his hope inside of you. You are of utmost importance to his kingdom, yet you are also replaceable. And when we walk in disobedience, there's a way in which that we might kind of pull ourselves out of the game that God will do something despite us. So the question this morning is this, do do your prayers look like Zechariah's prophecy here this morning? Do we thank God for his massive salvation that he's provided for us? Does it kind of fall in line with what Zechariah is saying here? Does your heart stand in line with God's saving work in Christ? Or are you so enamored with your kingdom building uh, that you have no eyes to see what God's doing in and around you? I know I get that way sometimes, right? We become so focused on our problems as we see it. We become so focused on the things we're doing, our projects, the things we want to accomplish, that we just tend not even to see what's going on around us. We haven't oriented or framed our heart to what the Lord is doing in Christ. 
what the Spirit might be calling us to. This morning, we, we want to put on the new eyes, as it were, to see the world through this new lens where Christ is accomplishing His purpose. God is accomplishing His purpose in Christ as the Spirit empowers us to do it. To bring ourselves into submission to this thing that God wants to accomplish. It's not just the John the Baptist of the world that God invites into this. It's us too. You and I have just as much capability of articulating God's saving work in Christ as anyone else. I don't know. I'm 43 years old. I know. I'm an old man compared to some of you, right? Some of you guys have like kids running around. You're like 23 and like, I don't even know how that happens. Like you just, you got started early, right? I feel old sometimes around here and I don't feel like I'm all that old. But that to say, for the first time in my life, I'm starting to see that the things I thought I was meant to accomplish in life are actually subsidiary to this cause that God wants to do? What if I die in relative obscurity? What if I give my life 40, 50, 60, 70 years of my being to this concept of kingdom building? And I'm planted in my pine box and put beneath six feet of dirt with very little to show for it. The truth is, it's still worth it. Isn't it? What's the alternative? That you stack up zeros at the end of your bank account statement? That you build a, a, a life in your workplace? Or is it even that you have you know 25 kids or whatever it is, a family that carries itself on? Seemingly good thing, right? Guess I'm at the place for the first time in my life where I'm saying, this is enough. This is enough. What the Lord has called us to is good. We don't need the fame, the respect. We can take my name and we can drag it through the mud because it doesn't matter. It's the thing that we want to honor is the name of Christ. Because that name's going to be around for a long, long time. I wonder if we might pray to that end. I know that God still has a lot to strip for me in terms of this selfish agenda. I wonder if we might pray that God would slowly, lovingly pry our fingers off of our death grip that we have on our agenda of the world things we want to see accomplished. I wonder if he might replace it with this treasuring of his kingdom, treasuring of his Savior, the dawning of his new day. Let's pray to that end. Lord, I just pray now that you would accomplish that. But I pray that you would strip me of all of my selfish agendas, the things that I think are so important in my flesh that I'm so committed to in so many ways. I pray that you would replace it with this 
massive view of what you want to accomplish in your world. Lord, someday you will literally bring a new Jerusalem from the sky and plant it here on the earth. You will bring all your saints from all the corners of the world, from past and present, and you will plant them with you in your presence. That's the vision you have for this world. And Lord, there's nothing I can produce that would even slightly compare to that. So Lord, we are beholden with your glory, with your honor, with your praise. I pray, Lord, that we would go out from this place, that we would be filled with your purpose. That we would not be tempted to centralize ourselves, but in all of our conversation, and all of our interaction, rather to platform your son, Jesus Christ, for his greatest honor and glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.